John 7, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples may behold your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, you show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you. It hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has yet not finally fully come. And having said these things to him, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, as it were, in secret. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling about among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying to him, or some were saying about him, He's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the multitudes astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Lord, we thank you for your word because it gives us a glimpse of what you did on our behalf. Without that, we would have never been reconciled to God. We pray this morning that as Tom uh, reads through this and, and explains what you have provided for him, that we would get a, a renewed sense of what you have done on our behalf. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. About uh, five years ago, most of us in this room attended a tribute that was hosted right here for Bob and Joyce as they each retired after uh, nearly 40 years of faithful service to this body on Christ's behalf. For, for me, that was one of the most memorable and challenging experiences that I've had in my 30 years in this body. Of course, Bob and Joyce would never have wanted us to do that, but for us it was great. Now imagine that we had that same gathering, but instead of actually honoring the guests of honor, the people who came up to the mic blasted them, shamed them, actually brought into question the legitimacy of their whole lives and ministries. And then what if some among us afterward actually sought them out to kill them? That would have been quite a different evening, wouldn't it? Now ratchet that up a few hundred notches and you've got something like what John records in John chapters 7 and 8. Israel threw a great big party to celebrate the goodness of God and then they eagerly waited for the Son of God to show up in person so they could expose Him as a fraud and so that some of them could lay hands on him and kill him. 
Before we dive into the first 13 verses of this chapter, I want to make sure we understand where these events fit into the events that have already transpired. And I'm going to put up a chart here of the major annual festivals in Israel to kind of help establish the timeline a little bit. If anyone wants a copy of this chart, just email me or Berlin and we'll get it to you. John 6 verse 4 says the events that are recorded in that chapter in chapter 6 occurred while the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand in Jerusalem. Chapter 7 now picks up six months later when the tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths was just about to get underway, also in Jerusalem. During that six-month interval, Galilee had been home base for Jesus and His disciples. As Jesus went around in northern Palestine and its environs uh, teaching, often in parables, and doing miraculous signs. In fact, most of Christ's miracles were done in the region of Galilee during that time. The other three Gospels give us a lot of detail about that six-month interval, that period. But as we've said before, John seems to deliberately avoid going into a lot of detail about what's already been covered. His is the last of the, of the four Gospels, and he talks about and focuses on things that the others largely did not. As chapter 7 unfolds, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, is about to get underway. This festival, also known as the Feast of Ingathering, was the grandest and it was the most elaborate of the three great pilgrimage festivals that brought all Israelites to Jerusalem each year. It was known as the Feast of Ingathering because it occurred at the end of the seven-month period of harvest each year. It was the last of the harvest festivals. Uh, At one level, it was a celebration of God's provision for Israel's physical needs for that particular year. But the very heart of this festival went way further back than that because it was a remembrance of God's miraculous provision for Israel during their 40 years of wilderness wanderings in the days of Moses. It was quite a big deal. During the time that Israel had been in the wilderness, they had lived in tents, tabernacles, no permanent structures, right? That period had been the time of the greatest and most absolute dependence that Israel had ever had on God for every single day's provision. Provision of bread from heaven, water from a rock. Not Iraq, but a rock. And protection from enemies that surrounded them on every side. Each year during this last great festival of remembrance, Jerusalem was crammed full of tents. Tents to house hundreds of thousands of Jews that came from all over the Roman Empire to Jerusalem. Right alongside the tents that were set up to house those who lived in Jerusalem, normally in buildings, in permanent structures. 
everybody stayed in the tent. If I had been a kid back in these days, this would absolutely have been my favorite festival because since the time I was a little boy, I loved camping, even if it was just pitching a tent in our backyard. This was a big deal for Israel. But as John's narrative of this particular Feast of Booths gets underway in chapter 7, there is a bitter and painful irony in that narrative. Perhaps the only irony more profound during Jesus' earthly ministry and life was the irony manifested in the haste six months later after this on the next Passover the haste with which the Jewish leadership sought to ensure that Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, was put to death in time that His death would not interfere with their celebration of the Passover. Israel was celebrating this great memorial, the Feast of Booths, while they were grievously dishonoring the very one it was supposed to remember. The guest of honor. Imagine a woman whose husband comes home after years overseas engaged in battle. He survives the war. He comes home. But his wife spends all her time embracing the photo of him that she's been carrying around the whole time he was gone and she doesn't pay any attention to him. She sets him aside. That's in effect what was going on here. The festival was a symbol. It was a sign. It was a a remembrance of the faithful provision of God. (laughs) And now God was in their midst. And they set Him aside. There's a marvelous wordplay here on the word for setting up tents. You'll remember that in his prologue to this Gospel in chapter 1, John began by setting before us the eternal Word who was in the beginning with God because He was always God. In Him was the life and the life was the light of men. He was the Creator of all things. Then John declares in that first chapter that this Word, Jesus, came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. That painful reality is front and center here in chapter 7 and in all the rest of this Gospel. John 1.14 says that Jesus, the eternal Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when it says that He became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt, you know what it literally is in the Greek? He pitched His tent. He pitched His tent among us. And the word that's translated Feast of Booths means setting up of tents. That's what it means. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, left His eternal dwelling place as my brother Ken pointed out this morning. He left the company of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and He tabernacled Here, among fallen men, the creator of the universe, 
who had miraculously delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt and sustained them while they dwelled in tents in the wilderness for 40 years, now came into the wilderness of this cursed earth and pitched His tent among us. In fact, He pitched His tent among the descendants of those for whom He had provided 1,400 years before. He came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. Even as the Jews were setting up tents joyfully all over the city of Jerusalem to remember God's miraculous provision of bread from heaven and water from the rock, the very brothers of Jesus did not recognize and did not honor the guest of honor. The true bread of life which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The fountain of living water who gives eternal life to men. He came unto His own and His own did not receive Him. Modern skeptics love to say that Jesus lied to His brothers in this passage. There's a precision of language that we, especially Americans, apply. It says, if Jesus said, I'm not going up to that feast, they don't look for an ellipsis like I'm not going up to that feast on your terms. They just, they just grab the exact wording and they say, look, there's a contradiction. But they don't pay any attention to the stark difference between his brother's proposition about what he was supposed to do and then what he actually said and did. If they did pay attention to that stark contradiction, they'd realize that Jesus spoke the exact truth, the perfect truth of God when he said he wasn't going up to the feast. Look at what his brothers actually said to him in verses 3 and 4. They said, Depart from here, Jesus, and go into Judea that your disciples also may behold your works which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. I'm not convinced that Jesus' brothers were actually trying to get him killed at the hands of the temple authorities here. Maybe they were, like the brothers of Joseph. I think they were essentially telling him to put up or shut up. See, they were still unconvinced that Jesus was anything special. To them, he was just their big brother who never seemed to do anything bad, which had to be terribly annoying, right? But if they were wrong about him, if He was, in fact, the Christ, now was the time and Jerusalem was the place for Jesus to change their minds and everyone else's. That, I believe, is what they were thinking. They were saying, Jesus, look, this is the big camp out. Everybody's there. And they're all in a good mood. If you are who you say you are, if you can actually do the miraculous things that people are saying that you're doing... Here's your chance to really strut your stuff. Who knows, you might even convince us. But the great disconnect between Jesus and His brothers here was precisely over the fact that Jesus was not seeking what they were telling Him to seek. He was not seeking anything of the sort. In fact, 
the brothers of Jesus were standing in the place of Satan. They were doing their best to tempt the one who had already been demonstrated to be temptation-proof, trying to entice him to indulge in a man-centered, self-centered agenda to lay hold of the fame and fortune that must necessarily belong to the one who is actually God's Messiah. But they completely missed His purpose, His agenda, His timetable. Jesus had no concern whatsoever for the expectations of men. None whatsoever. Jesus never did miracles to increase the headcount of those who were following Him. That's not why He did miracles. He never did miracles with the expectation that those miracles would win for Him the approval of more people. He did miracles to proclaim His identity as God's promised Messiah, the Son of God and Savior, and to demonstrate His authority as God the Son over all of God's creation and over the hearts of men. Both His words and His works were guaranteed to bring about the exact opposite outcome that His brothers were proposing here. The words and works of Jesus were guaranteed to drive away all who were attracted to His miracles instead of to Him. Look at Jesus' response to His brothers in verses 6 and 7. This is where He very directly clarifies His intentions. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time, your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. You go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet come. What did Jesus mean by that? The word opportune is is really strategic here. Your time is always opportune. When would Jesus' opportune time come? When will the time come when every knee will bow both in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every every knee will bow Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That time is most assuredly coming, but it it wasn't at this point. Now there was an opportune time that was going to come just six months later at the next Passover. And it was in fact the time when Jesus would publicly enter the city of Jerusalem with much fanfare. But He would not come on that day into the city of David to be publicly embraced by His people as the promised King of Kings. He would instead come to be publicly nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men at the insistence of His people. For those who, like Jesus' brothers, pursue the fame and fortune that comes with the approval of men, their time is always now. The world cannot hate those who are of the world, who say the things that the world wants to hear, who do the things that the world loves 
to do. But it hates Jesus. And it hates everyone who follows Jesus. Why does it hate Jesus? Well, he tells us right here. Because he testifies of this world that its deeds are evil. If you and I, who are believers in Christ, don't see a powerful challenge here for us, we're not paying attention. Who was it that continually opposed Jesus most vigorously? Was it people who claimed to care about the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses? Or was it people who made no such claim? Was it Romans or was it Jews? Yeah. It's amazing to me that today, just as in Jesus' day, it is most often religious people who successfully entice the followers of Jesus to do things man's way on man's schedule. It's no surprise to us, of course, that our godless culture opposes us. We expect that. But the far more convincing threat comes from those who claim to know and to care about God's priorities, yet who zealously draw the people of God into a man-centered agenda on a man-centered schedule. One of the most impactful books that I've read in the last several years is Jared Wilson's book, The Prodigal Church. If there was a way that I could get everybody here to read this, I'd do it. It is at its core a call to the church of Jesus Christ to return to our first love. Jesus Christ. And that call necessarily demands that we forsake the world's agenda and the world's schedule in every detail. The voices that are most successfully luring Christians into, into the pursuit of their best life now aren't coming from rank pagans. They're coming from professing Christians. Meanwhile, Jesus, the one that we say we're following, tells His real followers, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. He told them that because He was telling them that's how it was going to work with them too. In many quarters of modern evangelical Christianity, there's a powerful appeal to believers to focus on the good news at the expense of the bad news. To talk a lot about God's grace and not at all about sin. Definitely not about hell. And most definitely not about God's design for sex and marriage. Boy, we sure don't want to strike that nerve in today's We don't want to make ourselves the enemy of the culture. Wouldn't that undermine the Gospel? Meanwhile, Jesus, the one that we say we're following, says right here in verse 7, the world hates Me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Whose agenda are we following, beloved? Six months after Jesus reduced His following from tens of thousands of people to just a handful, His brothers now urged Him to get out there and sell Himself. (laughs) Be convincing. If you want anyone to take you seriously, Jesus, 
including us, you're going to have to do a whole lot better than you've been doing about building a following. Isn't that what the modern church, by and large, says to pastors and worship leaders and youth leaders today? Your methods are lacking. You're not making Jesus appealing enough. You've got to package this the right way. You have to make it sound good to the world. You have to sell it. If you're not growing your church's headcount and checking account, you're not doing your job. Meanwhile, Jesus, the one we say we're following, begins an encounter in the very next chapter of John with a group of Jews who, quote, had believed in Him, end quote. And He ends that same encounter with that same group of Jews picking up stones to kill Him on the spot. How's that for audience appeal? How's that for seeker-friendly? Jesus repeatedly in the Gospels, all four Gospels, takes crowds that start out sympathetic to Him in some sense, and then He declares the truth about Himself with absolutely no regard to to maintaining or nurturing that sympathy. None whatsoever. Instead of walking on eggshells to win people over, He speaks the plain truth that was guaranteed to drive most of humanity away then, just as it is now. Many professing Christians today say don't focus too much on the exclusivity of biblical Christianity. Maybe you can get to that later. Maybe. But don't overplay it up front. After all, Jesus loved both Jews and pagans. He was inclusive, not exclusive, right? (laughs) Meanwhile, Jesus, the one that we say we're following, says of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one, No one comes to the Father except through Me. He says, whoever hates Me, hates God. Does that sound inclusive? How many times lately have you heard Christians say that we have to be careful to build relationships of trust with individuals before we ever say a word about Jesus or sin or righteousness or judgment? They say if we don't build those carefully build those relationships first, we'll drive people away from Jesus. I've got nothing against building good relationships with unbelievers. I think that's really a valuable thing to do. But if we think that's the only way this works, come on. Jesus, the one that we say we're following, commands men who have never had a single conversation with Him to turn in faith to Him or remain forever condemned. Just as His apostles after Him commanded men to do. At the first Feast of Pentecost after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, 3,000 people were added to the kingdom of Messiah in a single day. You think the disciples had established carefully established relationships with all 3,000 of them? Would the great awakenings ever have happened if that was the only way that you could win people to Christ? 
Could it really be true that this is the first generation of Christendom in which we're not supposed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to every man, woman, and child on earth? I don't think so. Who's setting our agenda and our schedule? Us or Jesus Christ? We're often told by Christians in the large arena these days that we need to make our corporate worship, especially our music, more appealing to the emotions and less focused on the mind. Never mind that every single call to worship in the Bible's own songbook, the Psalms, is immediately followed by cause to worship. Every time. We're told by many who call themselves believers, that we need to give high praise to Christians for every baby step that they make towards submission to Christ. Don't rush people into sanctification. You have to meet people where they are. Meanwhile, Jesus, the one that we say we're following, (laughs) declares that everyone who wants to be His disciple must deny Himself and take up His cross daily and follow Him. He says, let the dead bury the dead. You? You come and follow me now. Some of you might be thinking I'm stretching this text beyond all recognition. I don't think so. Jesus' conversation with his brothers here is all about whose agenda and whose timeline he was on. For us who are followers of Jesus Christ, that means that this passage is all about whose agenda and whose timeline you and I are on. And we need to think hard about that in every category of our lives. Are we bent on being acceptable to this world? Maybe even being celebrated by this world? Or are we fully on board with our Master in the absolute certainty that if we're truly following Him, we'll be hated? by this world. Are you down with that? John chapter 15, Jesus doesn't mince words. He says says to His disciples toward the end of the upper room discourse, He says, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A slave is not greater than his master. That's a great, that right there is a great thing for us to remember all the time. You want to know what your life's supposed to be like? Look at Jesus' life when he was here. A slave is not greater than his master. He says next, he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Is that unclear? Are there a bunch of options there? He says, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. They didn't and they won't. And then he says, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. That's glory. Because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. 
I've heard people who profess to be Christians say, well, there can't just be one way to God. Those aren't Christians, people. And then he says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of Me, and you will bear witness also. Because you have been with Me from the beginning. We can't divorce those last two verses from everything that came just before them. Jesus is saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be My witnesses by His power. And what that means is you will say the same things to this world that I said to this world. If I pointed out to this world that its deeds are evil, that's what you're going to do on my behalf. And it means that the world will hate you because it hated me. Are you down with that? Godless people, beloved, godless people will hate you, but religious people who are unwilling to follow Christ will hate you more. They'll see you as an intolerable threat to their love of comfort, their love of man-pleasing, and their love of tolerance. They won't just politely disagree with you. They'll accuse you of leading the multitude astray, just like they accuse Jesus. They'll accuse you of opposing God precisely because you are submitted to Christ. Does any of that kind of opposition line up with your experience as a Christian thus far? If it doesn't, it's because you haven't been doing your job. If instead you're doing a really good job of smoothing the rough edges off of the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense whose name is Jesus, you're doing the wrong job. We need to worry a whole lot less about methodology and packaging and we need to be delighted to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We should be able to rest entirely in the knowledge that the truth whose name is Jesus will set men and God is the one who will make that happen you and I just need to speak the truth about him to everyone who will listen and to everyone who won't (laughs) to everyone who will listen and to everyone who won't that's what Jesus did isn't it did he limit his proclamation to friendly people Sometimes they started out friendly and by the end of the conversation they wanted to kill Him. And then we need to follow Him so closely that people can't look at us without seeing Him. That's what it means to adorn the message. The last three verses of this passage tell us what the Jewish multitudes were thinking about Jesus as this festival was getting underway and how they were responding to their their own religious leaders. Verse 11 says the Jews, and that I believe is talking about the Jewish leadership. I'll explain why in just a second. The Jews, therefore, were seeking Him, Jesus, at the feast. They were saying, where is He? They were looking for Him. And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning Him. Some were saying He's a good man, and others were saying, no, on the contrary, He leads the multitudes astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of Him for fear of The Jews. John makes a distinction between those he calls the Jews and those he calls the multitudes who are afraid of the Jews. 
But this multitude was almost entirely Jewish. They were all gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. There were some Gentiles mixed in, but this was mostly a Jewish crowd. So I believe that when John refers to the Jews, he's talking about the Jewish temple authorities, the leaders and their agents who like Nazis were spread out all over the countryside looking for anyone who was associated with Jesus. I know I get in a lot of trouble from associating those two terms. Excuse me. I, I Really, I don't mean any any kind of endorsement of what happened in Nazi Germany toward Jews. The Jewish rank and file here were talking about Jews, uh, about Jesus, but they were not talking openly. They were speaking in whispers, careful not to be heard publicly. And what were they saying about Jesus? (laughs) Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Now, you would think that one of those is a really good statement and one's a really bad statement. But if you ask the question, which of those is accurate, the answer is they're both pretty much equally inaccurate. The second response in chapter 7, verse 12, is in effect a direct declaration that Jesus is a false prophet, that he's leading the people astray. But the first response indirectly declares the very same thing about Jesus, doesn't it? The two earmarks of a false prophet in the Old Testament are found in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 13, the mark of a false prophet is that he draws the people of God away to worship false gods. He leads them astray. And what Israel was required to do with such a man is take him outside the camp and stone him to death and everybody in the city was required to cast a stone. If you happened to be that man's, that false prophet's father, you were required to throw the first stone. If Jesus was not really the Christ, the Son of God, the true bread out of heaven, the fountain of living water that He claimed to be, then He was in fact leading the people horribly astray. By making Himself equal to God, He was calling God's people to worship a false Messiah. Of course, a good man would never do such a horrible thing, right? He would do good things. That's what the first group in chapter 7, verse 12 concluded about Jesus. But beloved, if the best thing that could be said about Jesus is that He was a good man, then He wasn't. He was a false prophet. You know why? Because of Deuteronomy 18. The test of a false prophet in Deuteronomy 18 is that the man speaks presumptuously on behalf of God that which God has not declared. And if Jesus was just a good man, then He wasn't a good man. Because He claimed to be God. In fact, he claimed to be speaking on God's behalf when he claimed to be God. He said, this is my Father's witness concerning me. I'm it. I'm the true bread out of heaven which comes down and gives life to the whole world. I'm the fountain of living water 
I'm the source of eternal life. I'm the judge of all mankind. I'm the Creator of everything that exists. See, in light of what both John the Apostle and Jesus Himself have declared to be true about Jesus in this Gospel so far, there are only three possible options if He actually said these things. And I'll be happy to discuss that question with you at any time. The evidence is overwhelming. But those three options are the very same three options that C.S. Lewis so, so popularly presented in the, his great book, Mere Christianity. And here they are. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or God. That's it. He can't just be a good man. He can't just be a great prophet. <laughs> in his conversation with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, Jesus essentially told that man that there's no such thing as merely a good man. He said, why do you ask me what's good? There's no one good but God. You talk about baiting somebody. If you believe that Jesus was a good man or even a great prophet, or if you're talking to somebody who believes that Jesus was just a good man or a great prophet, you might consider the fact that someone who believes that about Him might say nice things about Him, but not when the going gets tough. When you face opposition from people who can actually do you harm, you'll clam up just like the sympathetic people in the last verse of this passage. Your faith in Jesus, if you want to give it such a grandiose name, will become a private faith. Not something you talk about much. Because even a really good man just isn't worth that kind of risk. He's not worth losing members of your family over. He's not worth maybe losing your job. But if you believe, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one spoken of by Moses and all the prophets, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the true bread which comes out of heaven and gives life to the world, the fountain of living water that ends our spiritual thirst forever, if you believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be, your faith cannot be a private Faith. Jesus didn't live privately. He didn't die privately. He didn't defeat sin and the curse of our sin privately. He didn't satisfy the wrath of God against us privately. You and I who have been plucked out of life and brought forever into His marvelous light cannot hold our trust in Him privately while the lost people all around us continue to stay dead. We must proclaim from the rooftops that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That He is the Savior of the world. No matter what people do to us. See, because He is exactly who He says He is, there's no risk that even matters when it comes to proclaiming Him. There's none that should even register on our scale of risk. The trade-off is infinite. There's no other life. There's no other life for us whom He has brought out of death into life than to do His work, His way, 
on His schedule. Dear Father, we ask You to show us what it really, really, really means to be followers of Jesus Christ. And don't let us ignore what You have to say to us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.